Have you heard the term dysfunctional family? <laughs> heard it, Matt. We put the dis in dysfunction. <laughs> they say, if you study dysfunctional families, that it's always the parents. You know, kids, when they're little especially, they're not, you know, they're just kids. And they say there's some things that contribute to a family being dysfunctional. One of them is, it's, it's called generational, where it's parents simply mimicking their parents who are mimicking their parents. And they're just doing the dysfunction that they grew up with. I call it the bad photocopy of a bad photocopy of a bad photocopy. It just gets worse and worse and worse. That's one thing that causes it. Another thing that causes it is codependent parents that leads to dysfunction. Another thing is addiction to alcohol or addiction to drugs. Those cause dysfunctional families. Mental illness can cause dysfunctional families. Smartphones and Facebook can cause dysfunctional families. <laughs> what, son? Hold on. Whoa, I know you're bleeding, but man, this is a cat video and it's awesome. <laughs> I can't get to you, right? <laughs> Silliness. I don't have a TV because of that. Because I, when I watch TV, I tune out everything. You can ask my wife. She'll be like, Matt, 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 Matt. I'm like, what? Haven't you heard your son? I'm like, I have a son? When did that happen, right? I'm really bad. So I was like, no, that leads to dysfunction. And they say that when there's dysfunction in the parents, the kids respond in a number of ways. Some kids, they just become what's called the super kid. Because of what they've seen in their parents, they try to go the opposite direction. So they're the overachiever. They're the teacher's pet. They get straight A's. They just really say, I'm pushing off against that and I want something different. So they become the super kid. The opposite of that is they become the bad kid where they really, in their environments, replicate what they're seeing at home and they just amplify it. And then thirdly, there's the clown kid that he has learned or she has learned, the way that I diffuse my parents' dysfunction is if I can get them to laugh. And if they'll laugh for a moment, we'll have something that's semi-normal. So they learn very quickly how to make people laugh and they're the class clown and they do that. Another one is the caretaker. That because the home is so wrecked and dysfunctional, this child takes on the role of being a parent and they do the laundry and they do the dishes because they want their home to look kind of normal. So they become the caretaker. Another reaction is the zombie, where that child just kind of becomes very passive, mumbles, doesn't look at people in the eye, just kind of reverts into a shell almost, turtle-like. And then the last one is the manipulator. This is the child that learns very quickly. Because of his parents' dysfunction, he can manipulate them to get whatever he wants. Shame, guilt, iPhone, you know, blow up, new car. Like they learn very quickly how to manipulate that situation. Well, dysfunction in a family is not something that the United States of America invented. It goes way, way back. And in Genesis 27, where we'll be today, we see an extremely dysfunctional family. Like it's a crazy chapter. If you really meditate and read this chapter, it just gets crazier and crazier the more you read it. There's a dad whose sole desire in this chapter is to thwart 
God's will in his kid's life. That's in the Bible. He is actively working to reverse God's will for his kids. I mean, that's crazy. We always try to do the opposite. I want God's will for my kids. He's like, no, I don't want it. I want the opposite. Right? There's two kids, twins, who throughout this story are vying for the attention of their father, working off his favoritism. There's a mom who overhears the dad's plan to thwart God's will and decides without communicating to her husband or talking anything out or having any family discussions, she decides, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to set it straight myself. So she schemes and connives. I mean, it, you just read it and you're like, these people are nuts. And they're in the Bible. The Bible is full of nutty people. Do you know that? We'll see that more and more as we study through the Bible. It's crazy, okay? It's one of my favorite chapters because it's so earthy and so real that you just say, oh, my goodness, I've seen this in my family, or I've seen this in other people's family. I see this all the time. Like, it's that kind of brilliant chapter, okay? So here's what we're going to do. I just want to kind of go through the story as quickly as I can. I know it's hot. If you get hot, move. Um, I know it's hot, so I'll go through the story, and then I want to make a couple points at the end, all right? So this whole thing begins with what I call a game of pretend. And what happens is dad Isaac calls his favorite of the twins, Esau, says, Esau, go hunt for me. Kill something. Prepare it just the way that you do. It's so good. Bring it to me, and I'm going to give you a blessing. The whole chapter is around this quest for the blessing. So Esau goes out. Rebecca, the wife, the mom, happens to hear this conversation. She's listening through the tent. There's so much of that in Genesis. So much like hearing through the tent. They should go for a walk if they really want to have privacy because tents don't stop noise. So she hears this plan. Esau leaves. She grabs Jacob, her favorite, and says, we're going to get it. I'm going to turn you into Esau and you're going to get the blessing. Okay? So that's where we pick up our story. Genesis 27, 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to her son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, notice her son, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before Yahweh before I die. Now, therefore, my son, Obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it here to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mom, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. (laughs) And I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to him to be mocking and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, 
And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. Now think for a moment. Have you ever touched a goat? Have you ever felt how hairy a goat is? Okay. So in order to trick blind old Isaac, mom straps goat skins on Jacob's smooth arms so it will trick her husband, his dad, into believing he's Esau. How hairy is Esau? I mean, how much testosterone does this dude have? As a general rule, I have this. If a man is as hairy as a goat, I don't mess with him. Like, bro, you're unstable. I don't know about you. <laughs> that is crazy. I ain't touching you, man. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, wow. Okay, verse 18. <laughs> just had to say that. It's so crazy. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Jacob goes in, hair in place, says to dad, I'm here. Who are you? His answer is interesting. He says, I'm Esau, but he adds in something, doesn't he? You're firstborn. I think that is so telling. Because if you could rewind the clock and go back 3,800 years to this time, to this place, what you would notice is this, the firstborns were it. They were the ones that the dad would dote on. The other kids, daughters, sons, would get, if there was anything, a little leftover, but it was the firstborn who was special. He was the one that the dad would smile at. He was the one that the dad would take on trips. He was the one that all his buddies would know about Esau. Did you hear what Esau did? Did you know that Esau hunts? He would be bragged on. He'd be told in the quiet of the night, you're the one to take over for me, son. One day you'll be me. One day you'll rule this clan. You're special. You're the firstborn. You're doted on. And so Jacob, for his whole life, has been living in the shadows, watching Esau get the smile and the recognition, just wishing for a crumb from his dad's table that the firstborn would get. And Jacob keeps thinking to himself, I should be that one. Why is it Esau? That hairy beast doesn't deserve it. I should be the firstborn. I should get the blessing. I should get that smile. I should get that recognition. I should get it. Haven't we all felt that in some part of our life? We live in the shadow and you watch somebody that you deem undeserving receive the blessing and the recognition that you want. Haven't you seen that happen? Maybe it was with a parent. Maybe it was with a boss. Maybe it was a circle of friends that you think, why, why, am, why am I not in that circle of friends? Why, why does she get it? Why does he get it? I deserve it. And you're on the outside looking in. I'm the firstborn. I deserve this, right? So here's what happens, verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, how is it 
that you have found it so quickly, my son. He answered, because Yahweh, your God, granted me success. Woohoo, man, dude, you are messing with a lot of powerful things right now. Oh, dude, he's so amazing. And Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Hairy goat, it's him. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. He got it. Whenever I read narratives, I always take a step back and then I try to place myself in the character to imagine what this would be like. So here you've got Jacob, lie after lie after lie, deceiving his blind old dad. He's there, he's got hairy garments on his arms, hairy goat garments on his arms. He's wearing his older brother Esau's B.O. smelling clothes that are way too big on him, right? He's had to lie, lie, lie. And here's the last one. Isaac comes in to kiss him, but it's not really to kiss him. It's because he wants to smell him. So he gets close to him. He's ready to kiss him. And then Jacob with Isaac's face right here, his blind, blanched out white eyes, searching for some clue. Is this really Esau? He begins to smell him. I can just imagine Jacob's heart just pounding right here. Because either he's going to be found out the fraud that he is and cursed, or he's going to pull off the biggest upset in history and get the blessing. It's all right there, right? And as his dad Isaac, with his blanched out blind eyes, is leaning in close to him, he smells him. And then in that moment, I can imagine in my mind the smile. The smile that dad had for Esau for all those years. Finally, the smile is for me. He's smiling at me. Now I'm the firstborn. I've got it. I'm the special one. For the first time in his life, dad smiles at him. And he's, oh, I get the blessing. I got the blessing. But what we'll see throughout the life of Jacob, yes, he got the blessing from his dad, Isaac. But man, his life is cursed. We'll see it over and over and over again because you don't mess with these things. They come back to get you. So yeah, he got the smile. Yes, he got it. But his dad, Isaac's favoritism, has broken both these boys, right? Jacob is this lying. I mean, he's able to get close to his dad face to face right there and lie. Time Five times he lies to his dad. Time after time after time after time. Cold, 
calculating. He's the manipulator. The dysfunction of his parents has made him into this manipulator. He's going to get what he wants to get. He's the cold calculating mass murderer. Aren't mass murderers always like quiet kids? Right? You go back, you like some guy gets bust for mass murder and, and they go back to his hometown like he was such a quiet kid. I never thought he could do this. Right? It's always the Jacobs. It's never the Esau, the crazy hairy one. It's always the Jacobs. It makes you glad that you live next to Esau, the hairy crazy kid. Esau though, it, when you study him, I actually like him better. If I was going to hang out with somebody, I'll take the Esau. I don't want the lying crafty dude, but he's really rash. Ah, oh, take the blessing. Ah, oh, take the birthright. We'll see in the next chapter, he just marries like crazy. He's just crazy because he's a spoiled brat. Dad's favoritism. You're the special one. You're the one that's going to take over. You're it has spoiled him and made him emotional and rash and crazy. Like they both been broken by favoritism, okay? So this game of pretend happens, and I want you to notice this as well, the power of the blessing. Look down at verse 32. Jacob now has gone out, he's been blessed. Esau killed something, prepared it, he comes in. Notice what Isaac says. It's verse 32. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently. There's little emotion in Isaac except for here. And he said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. And notice what it says next. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Like when I'm studying through this chapter a couple of weeks ago, I just paused there. Why doesn't Isaac say, I'm taking it back? He tricked me. He deceived me. I'm taking it back. He doesn't say it. He says, I blessed him and he's going to be blessed. I'm not taking this back. Now, Wednesday, we'll explore kind of what's happening. I think in Isaac, there's something happening in Isaac. But the truth is this. Words have power. Words have such power. You cannot take them back. You look at every soft science and over and over, they keep coming back. Words that were spoken, especially to kids, they get tattooed on their very soul and they live them out throughout their life. They echo in the canyon of your mind and come back and reverberate over and over and over again. They're that powerful. What a dad said, what a mom said, what a teacher said, what, you know, these, these words it's the stupidest nursery rhyme in the world that says sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Wrong. Wrong shape. Words, it's the very words that shape your soul. You'll never amount to nothing, son. You'll never be loved because you're fat and you're a slob. You're stupid. They echo and reverberate in the hearts of kids. And yes, he shall be blessed. Parents, we know this. Maybe your kid has said to you at some point, when they're rash and hot-tempered and, and they're just frustrated, or whatever it is, they'll say to you, I don't love you anymore. And you know they're rash and they're not being like thoughtful at that point and they don't really mean it. But even though you know all that, doesn't it still hurt you? That's yeah, Proverbs 12, 18. Rash, heated words pierce like a sword. You can tell, hey, they're rash and they're heated and they don't actually mean it. It doesn't matter. It was said and it hurts. It pierces your very soul. 
That's a power of words. And notice this about the blessing. You can't California the blessing. Here's what I mean. You can't fill your own tank. There's no self-service. Someone else has to fill this tank for you. Someone else has to fill it. You can't Stuart Smalley it. Remember him? Saturday Night Live. I know you watched it. NSA shows it. The records are there, right? He would sit there and look at the mirror, right? I am attractive, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Do you remember that? It's so good. Have you ever tried that? Don't admit it if you have, because it does not work. Someone else has to fill your tank. The blessing has to come from outside of you. It's like grading your own paper. A plus, great work, Matt, signed Matt. Right? That doesn't mean anything to me. I need a professor, someone who is greater than me, to say that in order for it to ever have any meaning. You can't fill your own tank. It has to come from outside of you. And with sons, it has to come from dad. Because Jacob had mom's blessing. Jacob was, was mom's favorite. You're my son. She says in this text, my son. And it wasn't enough. It has to come from dad. Moms can't do it. I had a great mom, phenomenal mom, best mom in the world. I had a dad who wasn't. And I can remember this. He came to live with us for six months when I was five years old. That's, these are the main memories I have of my dad. And then alcohol came back and he left. And during those six months, here's what I remember. Before school, he would take my older brother and he would force my older brother to do push-ups. Like one more, one more, till my older brother was crying. Like it wasn't a fun thing to watch. But guess what? He never made me do push-ups. And that mattered to me. Even though it wasn't fun, even though I'm like, I don't really want to do that. It was the fact that he wasn't doing the same thing to me. That mattered to me. Because sons need dads to fill their tank. That's how important it is, okay? So, phenomenal story. Let me think through with you three things. Number one is this. We're all Jacobs. We all, at some point, try to dress up like an Esau to get the blessing from the person that we want it from. All of us do this. We pretend, we do something. We laugh at a boss's stupid joke, not because it's funny, but we want his blessing. We wink at the sexism in the workplace, not because we like it, we actually don't like it, but we want the crew's blessing. We overlook racism, not because we're racist, but because we know if I did that, I'd be excluded. Like, it's amazing. We'll put on Esau's clothes in order to get the blessing. In relationships, I've watched people that, that aren't ditzy act ditzy or aren't nerdy act nerdy. Why? Because they want that relationship. They want that. In church, we dress up. We come here and people say, how are you doing? Excellent. Even though from the time you left your door till the time you pulled up here, you fought like rock stars in your car. And you threaten your kids, we're turning this thing around. And your kids are like, yeah, do it. I hate church. You're like, no, I'm not doing it then, right? Oh, how are you doing? Excellent. Can I pray for you? Right? We all put on Esau's clothes. We all do it. We pretend to be something we are not 
because we want to fit in. We want the blessing. But what happens is when we do that too often, we, we lose who we are, number one. And then number two, we're never sure, do they like me, Jacob, or do they like me, Esau? Who do they actually like? And then when people get close and they start to get behind your BO and your goat skin and start realizing, hey, this isn't who you are, you run from that relationship. So you never have the deep, intimate, beautiful relationships that Christ wants us to have in his body. Because we don't know, do they like me or my mask? Do they like Jacob or do they like Esau? And so we run. Well, Matt, what do you do about that stuff? If you read the New Testament, there's this phenomenal thing that happens with Paul. Paul's a bad dude. And Paul was continually giving his testimony. I killed Christians. I dragged them into the prisons. You know, he's talking to Christians. I killed you guys. Over and over and over, he gives his testimony. I think that's important. You, in fact, look at the Bible. The Bible never, ever shows a character without displaying his warts. Have you noticed that? We've studied Abraham, who is the father of faith in the New Testament. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? I don't know, right? He lies about his wife multiple times, sleeps with Hagar, kind of deceitful, kind of slimy in a way. You're like, uh, but then he has really great things. How about Moses, the great leader? Was he a great guy? He's a murderer. How about David? Here's a man after my own heart. What about David? He was a murderer, adulterer, and a liar, right? You just keep going. It's like, wow, the Bible's super honest about the characters, super honest. I think the thing that you do, if you ever want to stop pretending to be Esau, actually be who God created you to be, is you start giving your testimony. So when I saw that in scripture, it, it was when Edgewater was starting 12 years ago. And I made this pledge to myself, I made this pledge, I'm going to be super honest with this church. I'm not gonna stand up here with a Superman cape on thinking I'm bulletproof. I'm gonna tell really stupid stories about all the dumb things I've done through my life so that people will know, oh, he's not Superman. Oh my goodness, right? I, I'm not worried about skeletons in my closet because I pulled most of them out and danced them. Most of them, I still have a few that are really good saving. Most of them I pulled out and I've danced them for you and you've laughed. And so I'm like, I don't care. And so people, if you're out and you're like, someone comes up to you, I'm pretty sure this, this, this is how you respond. Hey, I hear you go to Edgewater. Well, I knew Matt growing up. Growing up. Did you know he did this? He'd be like, yeah, that's it? Oh my God, he's so much worse now. He's a moron now. I mean, that was nothing. You should hear what he does now. He's such an idiot. Maybe not that far. It's freeing though, I'm telling you. You want to be set free from skeletons and trying to pretend something you're not. Give people your real testimony of who you really are. It sets you free. The New Testament says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Titus chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, over and over it says this. The church, you guys, you were idolaters. You were fornicators. You were adulterers. You were men stealers. You were homosexuals. You were addicted to sex. You were all these things. But you've obtained mercy through Jesus Christ over and over and over. It's unblushing about the horrible past of its crew, but also brilliantly expecting change to happen because of Jesus. Over and over you see that. You get in a community group, you get around people that love you and can handle it, and you tell them who you actually are. And that starts this seed of these deep relationships where you can stop pretending to be something you're not. That's number one. Number two, Dads, 
you really matter. Dads, you really matter. There's a book, it's called For Better or For Worse. And what it does is this, it tracks 1,400 families for three decades to find out what's the deal with mom and dad, with parenting, for better or for worse, with that marriage, what's the deal with it? And there's tons of like fantastic stuff. I'll give you one statistic that I found very interesting. When there is a stable father in the home, it delays puberty for the daughter by two years. And it's just across the board, just 14 or 15. We just see this over and over. And so they say, why is that? Here's the answer they have. And I think it might be right. They say, when there is a stable dad in the home, then what happens to a daughter physiologically is this. She knows I'm safe here. I don't have to go looking for a man to keep me safe or someone to protect me or provide for me. I don't need to do any of that. I just can grow naturally, normally, beautifully, the way God designed me to. And it delays it. Dad, you matter. Bless your children. Bless them prophetically and physically. Prophetically means this. You pray to God how he has designed your children. And then you bless them in that way. And then physically, this is, you can't make it up. It has to match who they actually are because here's what it does to your kids. Then they know, dad's been watching me because I am actually good at that. He's seen me and now he is validating that in me. It's true, yes. And man, it transforms the heart of a child. You bless your children. Dads, you matter, but never enough. You don't matter enough, Okay? So, there is, in every kid, something you cannot satisfy, Dad. So I know young men, old men, who had phenomenal dads. Phenomenal. And there is still in them the need, the desire to be Esau's at time. Right? Bad parents amplify it so it overrides everything and you become like Jacob, cold, calculating liar. But even in good families with good dads, it's still in us. Because the need is not purely physical. There's a spiritual, deep component to it. So one of my favorite verses as a dad is Psalm 2710. Because it says this, when my mother and Father, forsake me, then God will be with me. Not if, right? When, when it actually happens, I know it's gonna happen. No problem, no problem, God's with me. See, it's spiritual. And I've been reading a bit, and what's fascinating to me is this. Like, evolution says this, that the one thing kids need, so all like social sciences now all track back to evolution. So you always gotta like, okay, have that in your mind. He wants to come up here. What's his name? Ricky. Cute kid. You bless him. All right? So evolution says this, that the one thing a kid needs is perfect parents. Parents that are there for them, nurturing them, guiding them, blessing them, using successes and failures to guide them, responding well, never losing their tempers, never getting emotional, right? And then they also say this, that parent doesn't actually exist. 
which I find just humorous. So if evolution was true, you would think it would have made us evolve into really good parents. <laughs> but guess what? No one can be that good parent that a kid needs. It's so funny because they forgot Genesis 3 and sin and brokenness. And that's what we always have to contend with. So yeah, dads, you matter, but not enough. But here's my last point, my final point, and get this one. There is a dad who is good enough, okay? So Jacob, his story is just so amazing to me. He, he lies and deceives and cheats, and he finally gets the smile of dad. Is he healed by that? Does he go from chapter 27 and become a different man? No, we'll see. He's still lying and conniving and scheming. He's the same manipulator he was before. So what we'll see is, it's fascinating. Fast forward the clock, 20 years for Jacob. He's at this river. It's at night. He wrestles with an angel. It actually turns out to be God. He wrestles with him. He finds out it's God. He grabs a hold of him and says, I won't let you go till you bless me. I need your blessing. The blessing of my father wasn't enough. I need the Father in heaven. I need your blessing. And that transforms him. And he's renamed and changed. Because what we really need is our Heavenly Father's blessing. That's what we need, right? So C.S. Lewis has this brilliant essay. It's your homework. Google, it's called The Inner Ring, but that's not actually the real title of it. It's called The Inner Ring, How Good Men Do Really Bad Things. And it's a speech he gave to the King's College graduating class in 1944 during World War II, like brutal, brutal time, when decent good men were doing horrible, horrible things. So he says, here's what happens. It's, just, it's a great essay. Um, the, the main, I'll, I'll try to summarize because I'm running out of time. The, the main point of it is this, that there is an urge in us to get into an inner ring, into the in crew. Maybe it's uh, the management at work. Maybe it's the cool kids at school. Um, maybe it's that, that whatever it is, we all have this inner, if I could just get into that inner ring, I'd be happy and satisfied and finally life would work for me. We all have that drive and that urge. And what C.S. Lewis argues is when you start living by that urge, nothing, nothing is outside of what you will do. If you really live by the inner ring goal, look out. But it's like peeling an onion. And the deeper you get, you keep getting through layer after layer. That one didn't do it. That one didn't bless me. That one didn't bless me. At the end, what you find is there's nothing there. That that crew that you're trying to get in is as screwed up as you are. That they're not it. But you have this quest to get there. So here's what I'll just read this quick one. Quote, as soon as your new associates have been staled to you by custom, you'll be looking for another ring. You get in, and it's not really in. There's gotta be another ring. So he says, the rainbow's end will still be ahead of you. You must break the quest for the inner ring, or it will break you. Jacob's in that right now. If I just, oh, I just get it. It's gonna break you that quest. Sigmund Freud said this, that that angst in us to get on the inside is because our parents didn't hug us enough or bless us enough or weren't kind of something. He always, he blamed, you know, he just did that. And I partially agree with Sigmund Freud, but I don't think it was my parents. I think it was my great, 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 grandparents. And their names are Adam and Eve. And they were in the inner ring. And then they blew it 
And they were excluded from that inner ring, from the garden, from fellowship with the Father. And when they were excluded, all of us want to get back into Eden. And that's actually what's driving us. Perfection with our heavenly Father, okay? So here's a solution. Here's a solution. There is, in the book of Hebrews, which is the New Testament book that grabs all these stories in the Torah, like it, it, it references all Abraham and Cain and Abel. It's just, it's grabbing all these stories in the Torah and it's saying, look it, there's an answer. Look it, something's happened. And the, the Torah is full of like reversals of firstborn, secondborn, right? We've got Jacob and Esau, Ishmael and Isaac, David w- w- above his brothers, Reuben being down and Judah. It's just over and over and over again, the mix up, Right? So, so there's this verse in there that's phenomenal. And it's amazing to me. I'll read it for you. You should probably underline it because it's awesome. So here's what it says. It's Hebrews 12, verse 22. But, okay, the but is based on a bunch of stuff that I don't have time for. But... You have come, past tense. This has already happened to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Here's the key, verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Did you hear what that just said? If you believe in Jesus, you're the firstborn. If you believe in Jesus, you're the firstborn. You're in. You're in the inner ring. You don't have to pretend to be Esau. Why? Because you're already in. This changes everything. Because most of us are defined by what parents or teachers or important people have said to us. And sometimes they've said bad things to us. And so what the enemy loves to do is he loves to grab a statement and then he loves to just pound you with it. Your dad was right. You'll never amount to anything. Your mom was right. You'll never be loved. No one will ever love you. Your teacher was right. You are stupid. And he pounds us with that using our past to derail the blessings and the inheritance of the future. Your dad was never there for you because you're no good. That's what he does. It t- listen to me. It takes no faith to believe the lies of the enemy. We believe the truth of God's word. And the truth of God's word says this. You are my firstborn. You are my beloved. You are the one. You are special. I dote on you. I have plans for you. You are going to receive an inheritance and a blessing, and I guarantee it because you're my firstborn. That's what you and I believe, and that's called the good news. And if we were charismatic, we'd say amen. Amen. But we're Edgewater, so I just say smile. (laughs) Just smile. It's good. That's the good news. The good news is we don't have to go to a river and wrestle God for the blessing because Jesus Christ on the cross wrestled the curse and sin, defeated them, and he says to you and me, you're my firstborn and you're blessed. 
And the way that we live that is this. You go from this place and you remind yourself, I'm the firstborn. I have to pretend to be somebody I'm not. I'm going to be who I actually am because I'm the firstborn of my heavenly father and I've made it inside already. And your opinion of me, while I might like it to like me, I still have the best opinion already. And it's the heavenly father who says to me, like he said to Jesus, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And when you have that on your soul, it's bulletproof. It's bulletproof. You're not double-minded being switched by peer groups or this group because you know who you are. You're not trying to impress people that don't even care. This is the gospel. This is what powers you. When you allow this to actually be truth to you, it changes your life. When you allow this, that you, as a believer in Jesus, are the Heavenly Father's firstborn, when you actually believe that, it changes you. You have a confidence. I call it a humble swagger. Humble because you know, I didn't deserve it, but a swagger because you know you are it. And it changes your life. No more pretending. No more dressing up like somebody else because you are the firstborn already. And what's interesting is Jesus heard those words when? When he was baptized. Matthew chapter three. He went into the water, he came out of the water, and then the heavens opened and the father looked at the son and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It was, theologians say, it was the moment that Jesus in his humanity said, I will submit to the will of the father for my life. And maybe today you've been running and maybe today you haven't been submitting. We have Isaac in our story trying to thwart God's will in his life, in the life of his kids. It happens all the time. Maybe you've been running from God's will. And maybe today is the day that you come up and you come in these waters saying, no, like Jesus, I submit to the will of the Father for my life. And you get baptized. And we'd love to do that for you. So I'll pray. Go from here, assembly of firstborns and act like it. And if you need to be baptized, come up here and listen and hear the Father say to you, you are my son, you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus Thank you for giving us what we could never get. Thank you for wrestling death and the curse and sin and the serpent and defeating them so that you could call us the firstborns, the assembly of the firstborns. May each one of us that have you as our savior May we walk from here with such confidence in who you have made us to be that we never have to pretend to be an Esau to get the blessing that will never, ever satisfy our soul. Make us bulletproof. Tattoo on our souls that we are your firstborn. And that may that allow us to go into our work and into our homes and into people and their lives and their brokenness and be who we are supposed to be. So go with us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.